0: Welcome to One Stop Shop, a weekly podcast that helps ambitious e-commerce entrepreneurs learn from the best, brought to you by Convergio. To learn more about managing all of your e-commerce tools, channels, and strategies from one dashboard, visit Convergio.com. Today's episode is with Joshua Portner from Silka.
1: Should you buy an existing business or create one from scratch? And what are the benefits and risks associated with buying an existing business? Our guest today is Joshua Portner. He bought Silka three years ago, but the company just recently celebrated 100 years in the market. In this episode, Joshua tells us about his experience, what buying an existing business really entails, and even how to know when it's time to let go of managing your own business. Hi Josh, how are you? great how are you i'm very good tell us a little bit about silca the company and the kind of products that you sell
2: so silca is a 100 year old brand this year and we were founded back in 1917 in italy as a pump and tool manufacturer for both the bicycle and the motorcycle and scooter industries so you know our company <laughs> went through a lot of iterations it was completely decimated in World War II and then rebuilt in 1948 as a bicycle pump and tool company. And then I was friends with the owner who was dying of cancer and ended up buying the brand from him right at three years ago. And so we picked up this little brand from Italy that was uh, having, having some issues, and we have started it anew here in Indiana.
1: Okay, Just curious, how did you uh, meet the owner? Because the difference in age, I'm assuming it's, t- I mean, 1917 is probably. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. yeah, so the, the owner was the grandson of the founder. And I had gotten to know him. I, before this, was with a company that sort of invented the carbon fiber bicycle racing wheel segment. And so we we had a great brand and just a fabulous company there and had Had purchased. We made one of the first carbon fiber disc wheels for racing bicycles. You've probably seen on TV the cyclist with that solid rear wheel when they wear the crazy helmets and stuff. And our company made the lightest and most aerodynamic version of that wheel in the world. And so for a period we we made we made these wheels for all the famous cyclists. And we needed a little adapter for the bicycle pump to get air into the tube of the disc wheel. And so that's how I had originally met the owner of Silka, you know, 20 years ago. We were looking for a little air adapter, and they they were the company to make it. So so yes, we had quite good, a good age difference between us. And then about three years ago, when he was sick, he had stage three prostate cancer, and he was you know, kind of looking for someone to take up the reins to pick up the, the brand and and keep the family name alive, as it were. So let's
0: continue down the story a little bit. So, like, how did you actually end up acquiring um, this brand?
2: So, you know, I was still with my my prior company was called Zip, uh, Zip Wheels, and I was still with them. And they, you know, we had been buying these little adapters from Silka for, gosh, 20 years. And... Claudio started I think he was calling people saying hey our company's you know sliding into bankruptcy we're at risk of government receivership which you know I think is probably a, a black hole for a, a company and a brand per- particularly in the Italian court system and so he was in a just a really difficult spot and they'd given him six months to a year to live and the company was in such a bad place that, I don't know where on the list I was of people he called, but I'm sure I wasn't the first person that came to mind. And so he called me and just, do you know anybody? (laughs) And, uh, you know, I think I got off the phone thinking, you know, who would be crazy enough to buy a failing bicycle company. But uh, as I thought about it and I thought about the problems, you know, we continued to have at the wheel company, you know, the wheel company our number one and number three customer service issue involved tire inflation. (laughs) And so in a way, it was never the wheel company's problem, right? It was always a a pump or a tire, you know, inner tube, or a valve adapter, some sort of problem related to inflation. And so I think that was one of the things that piqued my interest of why haven't we perfected bicycle pumps? (laughs) Why do most of them not work? As racing wheels for bicycles have become more exotic, the rims have gotten deeper. And so you require these things called valve extenders. And they're essentially just tubes of aluminum with some intricate machining on them to move the position of the valve. And that was a big uh, issue in our industry for many years that the wheels were changing much faster than the tire and inner tube companies were changing the tires and tubes to, to match them. And so it seemed obvious to me that, okay, there, I think there is a a space for a company to come in and do it better And then, you know, the real opportunity came from just thinking about the commoditization of this category. I think like so many categories, particularly in the tool space, consumer facing tools, you know, these are categories that have really become all about price. Who makes it cheaper? And when I look at the playing field, there's, you know, there's a hundred brands in bicycle pumps and tools, and they're all competing on the same thing, which is price. And yet as consumers, as as cyclists and racing uh, cyclists and teams, we're coming at it from the standpoint of, I just want something that works better. I don't need it to be $3 cheaper. I need it to function and I need it to last. And so that's where Silco to me felt like a really a great opportunity to sort of blow up the category, come in and just do something completely different from what anyone else was doing.
0: So it sounds like you've sort of answered this a little bit, but why out of all the business opportunities then did you feel like this was the right one to go after?
2: I, I think there was, there was probably a couple week period there where I started out thinking this was the worst idea ever. <laughs> and yet at some level, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. You know, I find myself in bed at night laying there thinking about, you know, these very related problems you know not, not to get too into the weeds, but I one of the, th- the things I was sort of known for in the industry was aerodynamic development, and so I led a team at, at Zip that spent you know about one hundred and fifty hours a year in the wind tunnel, and so you you know wind tunnel time is about a thousand dollars an hour, and you take your prototypes in there and you you've got to get the work done right because you are paying for time and you know, in the midst of this, we took a team to the tunnel for a 50-hour stint, and we always took a pump and a backup pump. And over the course of the week, I think the first pump broke on like Tuesday, and the second one broke Wednesday evening. And, you know, we're in a rental car driving around San Diego looking for a pump at, you know, 5 o'clock at night before the bike shops close. Kind of this moment of, you know, I I had grown up with Silka pumps knew them to be bulletproof. Of course, that's not what we had on our team. And we end up at a bike shop, and we buy a bunch of silka replacement parts that had to be 20 years old. And were at the hardware store, you know, hose clamping them into these shiny, polished, silver, beautiful, basically brand new pumps that broke, you know, <laughs> three months old. You know, there was that moment of thinking, you know, wow, this, this is the the consumer experience, except in my case, it was costing me a thousand dollars an hour of wind tunnel time. When you're the customer, you just want something that works. And it's nice if it looks fancy or if it's pretty, but can somebody just make this work? And when you, when I really would lay there in bed at night thinking about it, it, it hit me that <laughs> the stuff was failing to work because people are trying to get it to market cheaper. And with, without compromising sort of the external appearance of it right uh, this looks like an all-metal tool or pump it just has all the plastic bits and the cost savings on the inside where you know they don't affect your your decision to purchase it but you'll find out about that a year from now and and that really started to feel like opportunity you know there's a lot of you know we'd call them the the hardcore users out there right there's bike shop mechanics there's pro mechanics there's you know a, a good racing bike i mean $10,000 is nothing for a good racing bike right now. And so, you know, I think this idea that the ceiling for a bicycle pump or a quality tool would be $80 or $90 or $100 for a customer that spent, you know, ten dollars or twelve dollars or $15,000 on their bike, that just seemed like a, a nice open opportunity there for us to come in and say, you know, hey, we'll, let's do this different and we're going to design. Not the product to hit the price point, but we're going to design and build the product that we want to buy. And we're going to trust that there's other passionate, hardcore people out there like us who would be willing to buy it also. And, and fortunately, there were.
1: Well, I think it's great that you have both a business background. And I can see or I can hear in what you're saying that you're enthusiastic about the product. And you know, you're know you talking about it with so much Don't use the word passion, but yeah, it sounds like passion. So, you know, that's actually pretty interesting that, you know, you're in that position where you have both of, yeah, best world. So,
2: I think, uh, honestly, I I think you have, especially if you're going to take the risk and you're going to go into, I think you have to have the passion, right? There's an element of, (laughs) there's an element of passion that has to come out no matter what the product is or you're just, you're never going to get there, right? You know, in that entrepreneurial world, right? It's the hours, the time, the loss of sleep, the the risk. (laughs) I think there certainly has to be, you know, whether it's bicycle pumps or computer code or sewing and fabric and clothing. I mean, I think if that isn't there and that doesn't come through when you're talking about your product, it's going to be really hard for you to kind of develop that, That tribe of people who also feel that way, because you know, like I can only sell so many people on what I'm doing, but the real power is in the people like me who experience the product, who will talk with equal passion about it. (laughs) Those are the people, you know. That really amplifies, you know, your message. That I meet people all the time who, you know, will tell me, "Oh, yeah, I ride with a guy and he's got one of your pumps, and man, he he talks about that thing all the time," (laughs) and you think. You know, on, on some level, that's kind of ridiculous, right? Somebody talking about their bicycle pump all the time. On the other side of the, you know, that coin is, you know, that's the dream. You know, we've poured our heart and soul and vision and energy into this thing to make it exciting to us. Thank goodness there's more people like us, right? <laughs> right. So,
0: yeah, that, I love that idea. And it's definitely thrown around a lot, this sort of general statement of like, you've got to pour your heart and soul into it. Can you put some teeth to that though? Cause I always have a hard time translating it from just this kind of poetic idea of a business owner to what are you literally doing that you feel like you're pouring your heart and soul into your company? There's a number
2: of aspects to it. I mean, there's, I think the nature of the entrepreneurial process is that you're to make it work. You're going to be pouring Huge amounts of time and energy and late nights and not seeing your family and traveling all this into something right and so I think the more passion the more of you you can put into that or that you're willing to put into that the the more that can be amplified i you know, I think seth Seth Godin talks about art and I love to hear him talk about art, even though it doesn't always feel like the right fit, you know, but, but, you know, he really defines art as, uh, you know, like when an artist does a painting the first time, right. It's, you know, your, your heart and soul, your vision, the thing in your head, the imperfections belong to you. And, and that can be art now, you know, when people at the art school, you know, you you see them in Europe and you see them all over Asia and China and Vietnam, and, you know, there's art schools and outside there's people you know, literally painting dozens of Mona Lisas, right? Well, that isn't exactly art, right? That That's just a copy. And I think part of the distinction for that, I think, you know, if the real Mona Lisa is worth untold amount of money and fake Mona Lisas are, you know, $10, you know, at the night market in Saigon. And so, you know, what what's the difference there? I think that there is this difference of obviously beyond the, the name brand and everything there's that heart and soul and passion and risk and i you know i think as much as our customers are buying our product they're buying th- this vision of what we're doing and and kind of what we're after you know they're aligning themselves with us and our ideals and the product is i think a reflection of their passion for the sport i mean certainly to make it narrow to us i think you know we make products for extremely passionate cyclists who who really sweat every detail and who want to engage in and enjoy every part of the process right i want you to enjoy pumping your tires and tightening your pedals and adjusting your handlebar as much as you enjoy that feeling of wind in your hair as you're you're riding your bicycle down the road right and that's that's our goal and our vision and you know i think Putting that into the product shows that we, in the way we select materials, you know, warm materials uh, like rosewood for the handle, you know, rosewood's a beautiful wood that just has this amazing kind of feel to it. And we wax it so that as you use it, the, the oil from your skin will oil the rosewood and it takes on the sheen. Well, you know, where did we get? The idea to use rosewood, well, we got it from, you know, Fender guitars use rosewood in the necks of their their really high-end guitars. And knife makers for years have used it in knife handles because of the way it wears. And so having that passion allows you to have the interest to go after what is the best wood for grabbing and touching and using in a kind of harsh, non-delicate environment. Um, You know, if if we didn't really care – I think it'd be easy to be like, eh, the handle should be about this wide and let's, you know, what are the cost of our options to produce it from, right? <laughs> I think it's having the passion and the interest really lets you take those details out a couple steps further. And then, of course, when you're telling your potential customers about it, it's generally those things that resonate with them also. You know, I, I could talk for 10 minutes about the handle of our pump and you know, we we went to Japan and and literally learned the handle making from a Japanese knife maker to make the handle of the pump. And I think it's a really beautiful and really kind of fulfilling tactile experience to feel the handle and, and actually use the pump. And it's one of the things that people come back and say to us all the time is, you know, after I use your pump, I just can't use any other because it, it just doesn't feel right. And I think you know, we didn't set out to do some big, you know, technical ergonomic experiment of, you know, what's the optimal feel of the bicycle handle. But I think when you have that passion and that interest, and you kind of let yourself go a little bit, you end up there. And then, you know, that those are the details that get amplified by your customers and told to other potential customers and so on and so on.
0: Okay. First of all, I love the the story aspect of everything you're telling me. I can relate a little more maybe than some of our other listeners. I'm not a huge cyclist, but I grew up BMXing for a long time. I was really big into the BMX scene. And and just all these details of what you're talking about are, are super interesting. It paints a really vivid picture specifically what i'm hearing to go back to that original question then you initially started with saying that it was about part of its time but it sounds like it's much more than time it's some of the more tangible aspects just listening to you talk is being confident in the decisions that you need to make being oriented around the details of whatever your product might be being okay with risk um, if it's something that maybe you feel like might put it in a price point that you didn't necessarily intend or that you might lose out because you're attempting this risk because you feel like it's right do you feel like those are some of those tangibles that you're talking about to for anyone in any industry to be able to really pour their heart and soul into it
2: yeah i think that's a nice a nice summation i think the one it's a nuanced addition, but the other i think the one addition i'd make to that list from a risk perspective is, you know, there's certainly the financial risk and the, the, you know, career risk and life and money, all that stuff. But I do think there's like, there's an emotional risk that is a really key component. Right. And I think that's oftentimes we, we kind of write that off or let that be, let that exist as passion. (laughs) And, but I think when you're starting and you have nothing and you're, you're creating, for a lot of people, there is that emotion. You know, what what if I do this thing, and what if what if people hate it, <laughs> right? What if? And I think that's where a lot of a lot of companies, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs get a, a little bit hung up or stuck. I think you know, at best case, oftentimes it it's just it delays you, and worst case, and I, I have friends who started companies and really truly gotten stuck on some of those emotional risk elements of, well, this is what I like, but what if other people don't like it you know everyone else's you know interface of their app looks like this and i i like this other thing and people don't you know what if people don't understand it and i think that's when you're a small startup you know you you really can't run your company by focus group right <laughs> you you know i tell my my engineers here all the time you know we're not out to please everybody <laughs> we're out to please our customer you know and and if you know, we get Kind of comical, but we we get hate mail, right? We get really fantastic hate mail from people because we're very expensive, right? I mean, we're we're very expensive. Like our when we came to market, the most expensive. Oh, what was that?
1: I was going to ask you, what's your favorite hate mail? Because it sounded interesting. Be oh gosh, well?
2: I could put, we we have a folder of them and, and they're a little bit obscene, but yeah, I, if you give me a minute, I can pull it up and I will, I can read it to you verbatim because it's fantastic. <laughs> we probably get a piece of hate mail a week. And a lot of it stems from our price. When we launched our first pump under the new Silka, it was $450. And the most expensive pump that anyone had ever put on the market was $135. And so we were you know, we were way above the top of the market. I think a lot of people's angst focuses on that. I think a lot of people, you know, it's funny, we'll get hate mail. There's no other way to call it hate email regarding, you know, I'll do an interview, you know, with a magazine and talk about the handle or whatever. And so I can't believe, you know, you took all this time and wasted this money on a stupid, you know, and I think in a way, as I always told my team, you know, guys, it's when we're getting hate mail, we're doing it right. I mean, you you know you're doing it right when you're pulling that sort of emotion out of people. Nobody loses their mind over, you know, vanilla ice cream being on the menu, right? right? It's it's not good. It's not bad. The thing is, it's really more apathetic. Does anybody care? Uh, you know, 30 seconds later, people don't even remember what you're talking about. You know, it's when someone does a fried bacon donut ice cream with pistachio, you know, then people have opinions about that. And oftentimes they're, they're strangely strong opinions.
1: It's either love it or hate it. There's no in between.
2: It, exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, we've, we've all grown up in a more of a, I'd say, I feel like I certainly grew up in more of a, like mass market product sort of world. Right. <laughs> you know, I think we all grew up with big TV ads and radio ads and newspaper ads and big companies doing big advertising to get us to buy big mass-produced product. And that's just not the world we live in anymore, right? We if you've read the book The Long Tail, you know, that idea of there's now this very long tail that gets quite thin. And and as companies are able to target ever smaller market niches and segments, I don't need to make the next Coca-Cola. <laughs> Right. we And, you know, I just need to make I need to be the next silka. Right. I need to make the next exciting product for for my tribe of people. And, you know, the, the fun thing is I think there's always more people out there who are like you than you probably imagine. You know, I mean, I, we certainly have those moments of doubt. <laughs> like, wow, this is really expensive. How many people are really going to consider buying this thing and you know clearly there's limits i mean i think if we if we'd come to market with the first thousand dollar bicycle pump we probably wouldn't be here having this conversation right i mean could the market sustain a a, you know a product at 10 times the top of the market we'd sell a few but so i think there there are those elements of being grounded in reality but i think too it a lot of it is just you know being willing to take that that emotional risk and and believe that you know if if it's a product that you yourself would be willing to put to pay for yep. and be excited about yep. then I guarantee you there will be other people out there who are willing to pay for it and be excited about it that's
1: for sure yeah I want to transition a little bit into another thing that I've been thinking about now that you're talking about the company and all and it's It's interesting because you've only owned it for three years. For some reason, I feel like you've owned it for much longer than that. I don't know why. But, you know, the company has been around for 100 years. And it's been around, well, this year it's going to be 100 years. But it's been around for about 97 years before you took over. Uh, Can you tell us some of the benefits of owning a pre-established business?
2: I would say we've been very fortunate in that in the last probably 7 to 10 years of the company they had let quality slip and had tried to stay within the accepted price parameters of the market and really made some bad choices you know i think if we're really honest about it they had focused on trying to keep production in italy which i think is fantastic when the market was being flooded with low cost chinese competitors And I think one of the mistakes they had made was they had really put a price ceiling of a hundred euro on a pump. And as a result, they ended up cheapening the product and making some bad decisions and having some product that really just didn't work all that well or failed quickly. And so one of the things that was very fortunate for us is that they also during this period were very poor at selling the product. (laughs) So, you know, our brand reputation is really about, people remember the silka products of the 70s and 80s into the, really into the late 90s, but it's probably the 70s and 80s that we hear the most about. And it was stellar product with a great reputation. And so, you know, we, in our market, we probably have 90% name recognition, and I would say 90% of that is very positive that's a very worthwhile thing to start out with you know not a lot of startups get to start with a a recognizable and respected brand on day 1 you know i think had they successfully sold that bad product and the reputation would have become different <laughs> and i think you know if i were to do this again with another brand i would probably spend a lot more time trying to understand that than i did this time i think my own history I was a cyclist since I was 14 years old. My first job was in a bike shop when I was 15. And one of the first other than a racing bike, the first things I ever bought was a Soka pump and kind of have this great story, actually, that the shop owner, uh, it's a shop called grand performance in St. Paul, Minnesota, really well-known kind of famous little bike shop owned by a former pro racer named Dan Casabier, who's like my, one of my mentors in life. And, because Dan was an ex-pro and he'd raced and he'd been in Europe, and, I mean, we just, he was a god to us. And he only sold these Soka pumps and they were $90 back in, you know, 1989, right? So I mean, it's a lot of money. And I remember, you know, it's like, oh, Dan, you know, I, it's too much money. It's so much money for a bicycle pump. And I'll never forget, he looked at me one day and said, look, there's two kinds of pumps. There's this one and there's crap. Just buy this one. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> this, this is why it's all we sell. And so, you know, we're very fortunate that I have really a generation of customers who are like me. You know, they think of Silca as the pump that just worked and the quality was great and the Italian heritage. I think certainly had, you know, say Silca, the Silca of the 2000s been making the product decisions and the manufacturing decisions they were making. And had they also had a, you know, a really uh, strong sales and marketing force, you know that that they were successful shipping tons of that bad product to the world. You know that that certainly would have changed the value of the brand, right? And it would have changed a lot of the discussions we have with our our current consumers. You know, as it is, we were able to really quickly assess the pulse of the market for the brand. And one of the the, the first things we did that that really helped us get off the ground was, you know, silk is known for lasting forever and being rebuildable. And so we very quickly moved to make tooling for replacement parts for the older pumps, knowing that, you know, the that consumer who bought that pump because it was rebuildable expected those rebuild parts to be in the market. And and I think, you know, starting with rebuild and replacement parts, and sending that message to the market for the first six months that we had the brand. I mean, one, it really helped us with cash flow, that we had something we could sell. But I think it also sent a it sent a signal to the market that we weren't some fly-by-night startup that bought this old brand and was going to go do something completely out in left field with it, that we really shared the ethos and the values of the original company. That, you know, that we were about longevity and about long-term ownership and about rebuildability. And we saw quickly from selling those rebuild parts and having those conversations with our customers that, that that message resonated. And so that really helped us, I think, have the confidence as we started developing the full pump and the tools and the other things that we've done that, okay, there, there are still people who value longevity and quality and rebuildability. And, you know, I would say by and large, we're, we've become sort of a throwaway society, of consumer goods, right? I want to, you know, I'd like to joke that if you know, if I told you your iPhone was going to last for twenty five years, you you'd be crushed, right? Because you're really looking for that reason to get the next one when it comes out. We've been very efficiently and effectively programmed to want that next new better thing, and so it's fun to be able to kind of take that, roll that back a few steps in this tool space and say, you know what, even better. I'm gonna make something that you are gonna to wanna to keep for 25 years. And in fact, 25 years from now, when it's scraped and scratched and battered and you know, every bit as good as it was when it's new, and it's full of stories. Right. And so there's this emotional attachment that people have to these products. That to me felt so much more powerful. Back to your original question, I think so much of that is gonna depend on what the brand is and was, and and really like i said if if we were doing this again with with another brand we may have to we might have chosen a completely different path you know based on uh, the the state of that that company and and sort of the reputation when it when the brand changed hands
1: yeah all right so we talked about the the benefits and at the same time the challenges of uh, buying a company uh, or a pre-established brand but i want to take you to the opposite side, kind of talk about the experience of the other party here. If somebody is considering selling their business, when do you think is a good time for a business owner to start thinking about selling their business or letting go of control and management and maybe bringing in new leadership? Oh, gosh. That's a loaded, oh, gosh.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, that's just that's a hard question. I, I think there's so many layers there. <laughs> it's the onion that we can peel back. You know, I think it really depends what your your long term vision for the company is. You know, I think if if you're in it to build something and turn it so you can move on to the next thing, I think there's probably an element of always being aware of what it's worth and how it would present to a potential buyer for that, you know, opportunity that might come along to sell it. I think that's one of the things that you know, these older family-owned companies like Soka was in Italy, I think certainly if you have that, that family company generational ownership mindset, you do make decisions differently. And, and we certainly saw that in the old company that, you know, decisions were made as if the company would always be there and always be strong and always be valuable. And and I think that ownership style probably leads you to making decisions you might otherwise not make if you were thinking in more of a, you know, more of the point of view of, hey, I, I need this to be, to be profitable and, and valuable. You know, what, as I think about it, it's, you know, a lot of it's how you, you define value in your company. I think, you know, a lot of people define value as it throws off cash every quarter and it grows at some percentage point and, um, you know, every, everybody's happy. I think there's but there's different layers to that, right? Is is it what's that rate of growth? What are those numbers? You know, we I like to talk to my people about, you know, we we want to build we we want to integrate in with the cycling community. That's part of our brand ethos and I think, you know, wanting to take that long view and be here for the next 25 years probably it makes you focus less on things that are going to make you look good on paper this quarter and allows you to focus more on things that are going to make you look good in your community and, and with your tribe of, of people and with your you know, employees and, and the family that a company becomes the, you know, really focusing on the things that lets us grow in strength and in value in those ways. And then I think you know, any company valuation is pretty fascinating. So much of, I think, especially when you look in these tech spaces, you know, you have these companies that just hemorrhage money all over the place, but they're incredibly valuable because they have these huge followings, right? <laughs> and and as a physical product company that designs and makes actual things that we have to sell, <laughs> we you don't have the luxury of just losing money like crazy, but doing it billions of times over you know, so you can raise more capital, but we look at our, our tribe of, of people The our community email group is called the Silka family. And, uh, you know, we, we look at that as being a huge part of the value of this organization, because those are one of the customers that engage with us and interact with us and tell us where we could do better, how we could do better. They give us great feedback on the products and of course those are you know that that's also how the company makes money is by selling products to those people and and most of them are the kind of the evangelists that spread the word <laughs> you know those are the the people we hear about who won't stop talking about their pump and so of course there's a lot of long-term value in that as well and so that's where i would say you know if you if you're looking to sell and and get out quickly i think it's all about the financial, you know, it's all about the p and and the balance sheet. And you can read any book, it'll tell you how to, how to work that and make that look good. But, you know, we take this long term view. And I think there's so many, wow. so many layers these days to companies that, that build that value in that it, you really do need to be, to make sure that you're trying your best, as best as you can do with the scale that you have to be doing the right thing uh, in all those areas. And, and with that, there will be value in your organization.
0: Excellent. Mm-hmm. This is just very, very fascinating. Thank you so much for all this detail, really taking a deep dive into just your thought process as an owner and as you sort of guide this company. Um, so I appreciate you sharing all those things. Oh, thank you. At this yeah, point, okay, I
1: was definitely-
0: yeah, I was going to say go for it, Eliana.
1: No, I was going to say the, the but the one thing that stood out to me is when Josh spoke about how important it is not to think about what looks good on paper this quarter, but rather what makes us look good to the community. I thought that was really interesting, because that's the mentality of a company that's going to be around for hundred another 100 years. And it probably will. It probably will. <laughs> it probably will. Well, and he's not kidding when he said, you know, 25, we're going to be around for like, like at least another 25 years. I mean, they have on their website, they specifically say if you break, if you break the part, not like, you know, negligence or, or, you know, a manufacturer's defect. But if you break it, we will replace it and we give you a guarantee for 25 years. So you imagine buying something and knowing that even if you got mad one day and you threw it across the wall... And uh, across the room to the wall, and you broke it. You're still gonna get it replaced after 25 years. So that's pretty interesting to me. Let's let's not give customers ideas, but I'm just throwing it out no. like there.
2: Yes.
0: <laughs> so if people want to know where to purchase your amazing bike parts and extra supplies and products and everything. Where can they go? Where's the best place to be?
2: You can find us online at silca.cc, or you can find us at most local bike shops. If they don't have us in stock, they can order.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much, Josh. It was a pleasure.
2: Thank you.
0: One Stop Shop is a production of Convergio. Learn how to manage all of the marketing tools, channels, and strategies that you need from One Dashboard by visiting Convergio.com. This podcast was produced in partnership with Come Alive Creative. For help building, improving, and marketing your e-commerce store, visit ComeAliveCreative.com. To listen to more episodes or to give us a rating, please visit Convergio.com forward slash iTunes.